Welcome to the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. My name is Beth Shank, nurse scientist and sustainability leader in Missoula, Montana. On the podcast, I interview nurses working at the intersection of health and environment. Today's interview is with Heidi Ritchie, Director of Policy in the Mayor's Office in the City of Minneapolis. Heidi describes some of the challenges and complexities of her fascinating work in building a healthy, sustainable community and discusses how her nursing background influences this work. Well, Heidi Ritchie, welcome to the podcast. And tell us a little bit about yourself and your nursing background and, and what your work is like right now. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. I have a little bit of a um, non-conventional nursing background, um, but I'll start out with uh, kind of my educational background. I went to school for political science and international relations. I got my bachelor's degree and then I went and got my um, master's degree in leadership. I've been working in public policy as a political appointee uh, since 2005. I went back to school uh, right around 2012 to get my nursing degree. So I have um, both my associates and my bachelor's degree in nursing with a focus and certification in public health. So um, I do not have a practicing background. My background is primarily in policy around nursing. And so, like I said at the beginning, it's a little bit unconventional. What I do is a little bit different than what you would think in a typical registered nurse. Interesting. And so your current role, you are working in policy in the city of Minneapolis? Yes, I work for the mayor. I'm the mayor's policy director. So I oversee our team of policy staff. Um, and then I have my own portfolio as well, which includes health, public health, environment, and sustainability. Okay. And so that's how we got connected because you were interested in the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environment. So talk about that a bit in terms of what do you focus on particularly in, in related to health, environment, and sustainability? Yes, well, the way that I got connected with Summit in San Francisco um, and was attending um, an affiliate event for We Are Still In, so um, the event that would stand for the cities that have made a commitment and organizations that have made a commitment to the Paris Climate Accords, uh, regardless of the federal government's decision to pull out of that. And um, ANHE, I think, was somehow um, a part of that event. And so I was really intrigued by this organization of nurses who recognize the importance of climate change and the importance of climate change on our public health and on individual health. And so I joined because um, that intersection between health and environment is primarily uh, in my wheelhouse and something that I look a lot at. For example, um, how, how well, I live in Minnesota, so how these, these events, these large scale snow events um, can affect people's health, people's ability to get around, people's access to healthcare, um, things like that. And so, you know, where we in February just had a record amount of snowfall in Minnesota, uh, a lot of people um, deal with, you know, that kind of thing and see how that climate change affects uh, people's everyday lives and then also affects just their ability to be healthy. 
Interesting. And and while we're on the subject of climate change, are you seeing other uh, health-related events in your area, in Minneapolis or in Minnesota, for instance, um, Lyme disease or heat stress? What what? Tell me about your experience with that year-round. Yeah, I think um, what comes to mind for me is some of the environmental pollutants that get worse or are worse because of things like air quality. Um, and, you know, we have what I see in my line of work is that climate change has impacted our most vulnerable populations disproportionately. Um, and so people who are already experiencing um, higher levels of things like asthma or lead poisoning um, or other environmental triggers are more susceptible to um, the impacts of climate change because they're at this intersection of poverty and um, you know, a lack of economic inclusion. And then you've got all of these concentrating health factors. Um, our areas geographically in my city, Minneapolis, that um, are racially concentrated areas of poverty also are the areas that have higher rates of hospitalizations for asthma among kids, for example, and higher rates of elevated lead levels among kids. Um, and so I see where all of that kind of connects, where you've got your environmental pollutants that are triggering asthma, that mean you have to go to the hospital, which means you're not um, developing as best you could, whether or not it's academically, um, if you've got elevated lead poisoning, of course, there's all sorts of stuff that can happen with brain development. Um, and so that's primarily where my work is centered and, and where we're seeing the impacts of climate change, environment, and health. Interesting. Thank you for that. <clears throat> so, so it sounds like your city was pretty committed. Um, you, went, you went all the way to California to um, be with others who were signing the we're still in commitment. Has that was that an easy decision for your uh, city leaders? Was tell, tell me about how um, that came about or if there was any conflict or or not. Was that a difficult decision, I guess? Yes. Um, no, it really wasn't. We have um, a group of policymakers in the city of Minneapolis right now who uh, really understand the impacts of climate change and the urgency with which we need to address that. And they also see how that bleeds into things like individual health. I mean, it's easy to see how health on a community level is impacted, but um, how it impacts people individually, they're able to see that connection. It, we also um, submitted an application and I led this this initiative with the mayor's office, um, but we had buy-in from all our staff, public work staff, our sustainability staff, uh, other council members. Um, so we submitted an application for the American Cities Climate Challenge, um, which we were selected as one of 25 cities to take part in this challenge, where over the course of the next two years, we accelerate our work around climate change um, so some of the things that we're working on have to do with energy efficiency, um, um, a community-wide solar um, strategy that has a focus on uh, people who are low income. We look at ways that we can increase energy efficiency 
affordability in housing, and then also how we're able to mitigate some of those health hazards that I referred to earlier, um, such as lead and asthma triggers within the home. So looking at how we can leverage, for example, subsidies that we might give around affordable housing and couple them with things that we offer as a city to mitigate lead and asthma triggers. Um, and then also at the same time, bring in the uh, home energy audit piece where we would look at energy efficiency and other items that could be um, changed within somebody's home, which then again ties into the economic feasibility of, of housing because in a lot of the old houses in our city, there's no energy efficiency. And so your utility bills are higher, which of course hits people who, um, you know, who have a history of poverty harder than it would if you had, you know, um, a brand new house that was full of, you know, good windows and insulation and things like that. Um, but we find ourselves oftentimes walking this fine line between helping make improvements on a property in energy efficiency, in lead, in asthma, and then turning the landlord turning around and raising rent so that they're no longer affordable. So we've been kind of tying that stuff into affordability so that we're able to kind of lock those properties in to maintain their affordability for people. Wow, that sounds like a fantastic project, and congratulations for um, being chosen as one of those cities. You. And you've really described so many of those inter those interactions and interweavings and and linkages, uh, which make it such a complex issue. I'm curious about your perspective of um, you know I hear and read that cities are really the engines of our American response to climate change, both in mitigation and adaptation and building resilience in protecting health. And I know a little bit about this because I'm involved in my own city's work, but our, my city is 60,000. It's not, I think, what's Minneapolis, 5 million or something? Not quite. We're about 500,000. 500, okay. Um, so I'm curious of your perspective of how will, how will you know you're successful as a city? at um, adapting, mitigating, and building resilience? What are some of your endpoints, and what what do you consider this is in the scope of the city's obligation, uh, meaning the municipality, versus a larger group of, of community partners working together? Well, I guess I'll talk about the last thing first, and um, none of the work that we do in the city of Minneapolis would be possible without our partnerships with communities and our partnerships with business. And I'll just give a quick example. We, a few years ago, looked at the possibility of um, municipalizing our own utilities. And, um, you know, I think it, it goes without saying that the utility companies were a little bit nervous about that. And so we worked with them and set up a first in the nation partnership called the Clean Energy Partnership with our utility companies, um, which is Excel Energy for Electricity and Centerpoint for Natural Gas, with the express goal, um, mutual goal of en creating energy efficiency, uh, adapting to climate change, um, and then looking at renewable energy. And so I, I, I give that example just to point out that 
really it is like we're nothing we do in the city we're doing unilaterally or as an island we do really rely on our community partners and our organizational partners to get that work done i think um the role of municipalities in um creating resiliency and sustainability within the community as a response to climate change has been increasingly it's become increasingly more necessary because of just the climate on the federal level. Um, and I, I mean, I don't think that's any different than it's been in the past when you've got issues where, um, you know, there might be just a, a, a lack of a juxtaposition between, you know, what the administration is doing on the federal level and then what we feel we need to do to respond to our constituents on the municipal level. And because there isn't that action on the federal level, it has become one of those things that is just more important and more urgent for municipalities to address. Right, that makes sense. And you're you're located centrally, typically, because all businesses work through the city, and the city health department, um, you know, may have a very large role. So it definitely makes sense. And also people have, perhaps, I don't know what you'd think about this, but that people may have um, a sense of knowing their neighbor better when working with their city than when working with the federal government. And so it might be a little bit easier to um, get along. <laughs> I think that's right. I mean, municipal government touches people's lives in a very tangible and real way, whereas, you know, federally and even on the state level, um, people feel a little bit removed from, from the policymakers at those levels. And so we're able to touch people's lives in a meaningful way, but we also, um, people are more sensitive to the work that we do on the municip municipal level and they have more access. So it's easier to access your city council member or your mayor's office than it is to access your United States Senator's office. And so it makes sense that people, when they have an issue that they're dealing with in their daily life, like their their child having elevated blood levels because of the lead paint in their rented home, um, they're going to turn to the policymakers on the local level before they're going to try and reach out on the state level. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. In, in terms of your climate challenge or outside of that, have you all set goals for energy efficiency, zero um, or net carbon positioning, zero waste, any of those kind of goals that some cities are doing? Yes, definitely. And I was going to talk about that a little bit earlier. Um, but we do, as a city, have a 100% renewable electricity pledge um, that we're working on. So the first piece of that is to work within our own city operations, is to become 100% renewable electricity um, across the city enterprise. And then the second goal is to do that community-wide. So um, we have plans in place that we're working on to, to get us to that goal. Um, we also have a climate action plan, which talks about greenhouse gas emissions. We have goals for that. Um, in terms of the health stuff, um, <clears throat> we are working, we partner with some of our larger healthcare providers and hospitals to work on referrals for kids who come in or who are frequent 
users of emergency services due to asthma and work with them to um, try and get into you know, their property, which is where you know, they spend a lot of their time and mitigate some of those asthma triggers. And so the percentage of you know, hospital admissions due to asthma, um, if that goes down, then we know we're doing our job specifically in, within certain geographic areas. So we've got some metrics also with the climate challenge, the Bloomberg American Cities Climate Challenge. Um, we'll be hiring very soon a climate advisor. And we've got a lot of metrics on the programs that we're looking at. So, you know, in the transportation sector, like, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and just use of our public transit system and use of the roads by single occupancy vehicles, those types of goals, and then goals on the building side for building sustainability um, and just having like a citywide sustainable building policy. So when people are coming to the city and asking for subsidy, we're holding them to a standard of sustainability for whatever building they are developing. Um, and then, you know, we've got a lot of regulation around utilities and solar and things like that. So just working on legislative initiatives that make it easier for the everyday person to make the choice in their life to use electricity that's renewable versus non-renewable. Those are some of the things that we work on and some of the metrics that we use to see if we're being successful or not. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, in terms of your renewable electricity pledge, are you working with your utilities for from the generation side? Are you buying racks? How are you doing that? Um, yep, we work with the utility companies on that. We do have a program called Renew. Well, the utility company has a program called uh, Renewable Connect, where we're basically purchasing solar um, for our municipal operations, but it's at a premium level. And so that's been one of the things that we've been working on um, with the utility company through our clean energy partnership and then with our community organizations um, because it's hard for our community organizations and even just our residents to stomach the fact that we're achieving our renewable energy goals, but we're paying a premium for it. And if we're paying a premium for it, that means that our taxpayers are pay paying that premium for it as well. Um, because the way that, you know, that our municipality works is that, and so um, we've been working with the utility companies and with community organizations to kind of bring down that premium amount in so that we can use solar and wind, but we're not, you know, like I said, paying that premium for it. It just doesn't, it doesn't seem that that is a worthwhile way to um, achieve our goal. Right. At least it might not be sustainable, though, though, if people understand, perhaps, I don't know what you'd think of this, but when people understand that um, we're paying a premium when we use fossil fuels, it's just a premium of health, pollution and climate change. Um, and so it might be that people are, are, in fact, you know, more willing to pay for healthier, cleaner energy. I think you're right. And I think that's where they are now. Um, and so we're able to do that. But it, yeah. you're absolutely right. It, it doesn't feel sustainable because I think that there's a feeling um, toward utility companies that there's no need for them to 
um, put a higher rate or a higher price on mm. solar and wind because it doesn't cost them more to generate it. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. Um, another question for you, just because you have a very vibrant educational uh, system in in Minneapolis, I was thinking of the universities. Do you have opportunity to work with researchers or students or interns or in some way? And then, and then, if so, are you able to do that with nursing or other health professionals at all? Yeah, definitely. There's a number of examples um, around that. One of the things that I'm working on with the University of Minnesota is um, there's the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact, I think it's called, M-U-F-P-P, and the city of Minneapolis has signed on to that. But we're looking at ways that our food policy can be more sustainable, and then also how food policy contributes to greenhouse greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. And so there is that connection between food policy and climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, but it's not something that is really sort of have widely been researched. And so it that's a piece that we're working with the University of Minnesota on looking into that intersection. Interesting. And I bet that really applies because Minnesota is, is largely an agricultural state, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. Cool. Um, I also wanted to follow up a, a little bit more about nursing. You know, you you do have a really interesting background and, and we're uh, well established and well experienced in political science and leadership before you became a nurse. And so, and yet you're now working in policy, but also in health. So I just wondered if you had reflections about in what ways has nursing helped you in your career? Does it continue to be relevant? Uh, Does it, is it helpful to have a license and, and, or the knowledge or both? Yes. I mean, I would say that it's, there is really no substitute for having somebody who has the education background and also practical experience in a certain subject. So in this case, nursing and health, then being the person who's advising policymakers on policy and writing policy and coming up with policy. Because in the back of my mind, whenever I'm writing policy or I'm looking at, you know, a program, you know, right now we're looking a lot at the opioid epidemic, um, having that background, that clinical background really is second to none in order to be able to write policy that can be implemented by providers or implemented um, by community health organizations. Because so often we have policymakers that, that write bills or legislation and they do it from that lens of, well, this is good governance, this is what's legal, this is the parameters by which we can, you know, write things. And they forget about how easy it might be to implement or how it impacts certain sectors, things like that. So I think it's just beneficial when you have someone who has the experience in policy, but then also someone who has that kind of lens by which the people that you're regulating have to be subject to that regulation. Right. That makes sense. And, and it helps you really interpret what, what people are going to experience and know that your policies matter, which, which of course they do. And, and I would just add to that, that, you know, <clears throat> healthcare, everybody knows healthcare and even insurance coverage and that type of thing 
has been such a huge piece of our political debate on every level of government. And to have the voice of the practitioners, the providers, and the patients as a part of that policymaking process is imperative. And I think even, you know, in the code of ethics and our nursing code of ethics, it talks about advocacy um, and advocacy on the level, you know, not just the level in the hospital where you're, you know, making sure that, you know, the patient census is, is manageable, but also, you know, advocacy on a federal level for things that will impact patients in everyday life. You bet. You you probably know that through the Alliance, Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments, there, there are four primary focus areas. We call it the REAP framework, so research, educa- education, advocacy, and policy. And so uh, there are people who are quite involved uh, at the policy level from lobbying in D.C., um, encouraging folks to get involved at their state and local levels. And um, again and again, we hear how important it is you know, for um, members of the community, as you said, who have some health background, in our case, nursing, um, to be there and to really help to explain things. Because we make the assumption that that what's obvious to us is obvious to everyone, but it's not. It's important for us to explain some of these connections, especially in the complex situations like climate change or really trying to reverse um, um, global pollution. Well, and I can just say there's one example that um, that's been on top of my mind lately. In we've got a coalition of people, um, providers, um, and de- health departments. Uh, Minneapolis has their own public health department. And a lot of other cities do not. Like for example, St. Paul, our twin city, does not have their own public health department. We are accredited. Um, and we have joined together with some other um, organizations like American Lung Society in order to kind of shepherd through a legislative item this year that would allow um, enhanced asthma care services to be covered by uh, Medicaid. And so a lot of the services that Minneapolis has where we would go in and provide like HEPA vacuum um, cleaners and filters and other mitigation for asthma, we do that and we actually use some of our own taxpayer money in order to be able to provide that for people. But what we have right now on the state level is a legislative proposal that would allow, for example, a provider, um, a doctor or a nurse practitioner to write a prescription for those asthma trigger mitigation efforts. And then the person would be able to be reimbursed like they would be able to be reimbursed or they would get a special um, rate through Medicaid, just like they would for a prescription or for a blood pressure cuff, for example. So that's something that we're really kind of pushing um, at the state level. And that would have a big impact on our own residents here in Minneapolis. That's a fantastic, a wonderful program. You know, I live in the Rocky Mountain West where the fires are are overwhelming when it's smoky. And our city county, um, with some community partners, had distributed HEPA filters to many folks who just couldn't get out during those times. And uh, they did that for free, but, you know, that's not sustainable either. So your approach, I hope, will, will uh, offer opportunities for other states and other cities to 
adopt a similar mechanism somehow. It's really important. Yeah, I think that the understanding that medication is a medication and you know direct provider services aren't the only factors in in health and healthcare and prevention, um, but that other things like again providing those mitigating factors for lead elevation and asthma and there's a number of things. I mean the opioid. Um, the opioid epidemic is another one where it makes sense for providers to write prescriptions for things that aren't just drugs, um, but things that will, you know, treat their their medical concern um, above and beyond drugs, and that those things are as important as the medications that they might receive, and should also be things that are reimbursed by Medicaid or the insurance companies in general. Right. It makes so much sense. We we have a program in our community called Prescription Produce, which you, you may have as well. And that's when a provider can write a prescription for a certain amount of produce from our farmer's markets or some local gardens we have. But that's paid for by donations, not by Medicare, Medicaid, or insurance companies. It would be great if that were translated uh, because sometimes it's just too big of a of a hurdle for people to get out, get fresh produce, learn how to cook it, learn learn how to like it. You know, there's some palate changing work going on. Mm-hmm. So that'd be another opportunity along those lines. Yeah, I, I'm gonna look into that. I think that's a great idea. Uh, let me ask you another question, and, and um, this one is very broad, but what, when you think about particularly this in, intersection of um, environment and health, what is your biggest concern? I, I always struggle with the urgency of climate change and health impacts because I don't see that urgency being felt broadly throughout our communities. And so one of the biggest struggles that we have when we're looking at you know addressing climate change is how much of a psychological shift it is. Uh, for example, just the whole single occupancy vehicle to uh, using public transit is going to require a psychological shift in our communities in order for it to make an impact. Because the one-off of the, you know, okay, well, I'm going to take the bus today or, you know, the decision to get rid of a car, um, that happens way less likely than someone who um, just justifies being, you know, business as usual because they don't necessarily feel how they can impact climate change on an individual level. Um, and so I think, you know, the years ago, these people started talking about their carbon footprint and what is your carbon footprint? And I, that kind of language has still persists, but it, it, it hasn't been a part of the conversation as much in the last few years. But just really trying to equate you know, how by switching, switching out, I'm just going to use this example, switching out one meal a week for plant, plant-based, um, or one day switching out from using your own car to using public transit. How does that equate in terms of your impact on mitigating climate change? And, you know, how many greenhouse gas emissions a year are you, um, are you, you know, saving 
So one of the things we're looking at in the city um, is an app that will um, encompass sort of all of these different kind of ridership uh, opportunities. So we've got line bikes and scooters. So these are scooter share, bike share, car share, electric vehicle sharing, and putting them all into one app. So you don't have to have like 16 apps for each different you know, mode of transit and actually allows people to plan a trip within, you know, half a mile of their destination, all on public transit. That's hopefully reliable. And then it also shows like at the end of that trip, how much you saved in, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and how much, you know, lowered imprint you had in terms of your carbon footprint. Um, and so I guess, that's a long way of saying the biggest piece that I see and that we struggle with is just this psychological shift as a community into feeling and understanding the urgency of addressing this issue before it's too late. Yeah, that was well said. And that sounds like a great app that will really help uh, link link things. But, but your point about the psychological shift, uh, I yeah, it's really a conundrum, isn't it? You know, all of us alive right now, if we're paying attention to this problem, it's it's kind of, I, I often feel like, my goodness, how are we going to figure this out? So many different um, needs and areas to address. I wanted to just ask your opinion about, have you, are you seeing and feeling a shift in the past, you know, six months or so? And I, I guess I should say, well, I'm feeling a shift in the past six months or so. Related, I think, to the IPCC report and also to the National Climate Assessment. Um, you know, some of the data we've gotten on uh, surveying the public, uh, people really, really unable to say, no, nothing's happening. Um, are you experiencing that in Minneapolis? So the IPCC report is very, it's, it's undeniable. And it's, it's, um, it's terrifying to think that if we don't, like even if we do our best, um, we're still going to experience some very dramatic consequences. Um, and so I guess that's where the the urgency around the issue is starting to be felt a little bit more. So I agree with you in my opinion. Um, the IPCC report and some of the other things that have been coming out have really kind of pushed this issue where it's no longer really feasible to deny that there's not going to be some very devastating consequences if we don't figure something out. And so, I mean, Minneapolis is kind of a weird little city here where, you know, we're a council of all uh, DFLers and one or so that's our local Democratic Party, sorry, all our are Democrats, and then we have one Green Party member. And that's been, it's been that way for um, 12 plus years. And so there's always been kind of that acknowledgement. And, um, you know, we've had our climate action plan is over a decade long. So we're looking at, up, at updating that. And all this is just to say that we've sort of felt this urgency before, I think some of the other places because of just our, our political landscape. That said, I agree with you um, that some of these 
things that are coming out now just make it really, really hard to turn a blind eye or um, ignore what's going on. And and I think when you when you're slapped in the face in terms of what's going on weather wise, that's another factor that I've seen just really have an impact in people's ability to process what's going on with our climate. Yeah, exactly. I know we say don't confuse weather and climate. On the other hand, when the weather is as it is, you 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 uh, can't help but compare it to 30 years ago. And, and I think that's very um, powerful because people live it. Yeah. And um, I, in terms of weather, when, when, and when I use the term, I, I'm kind of speaking very specifically about some of these larger weather event, weather related events and how the frequency with which those events um, has been increasing. And, and that just for us practically means that, you know, in addressing these events, we have to spend more money. And so they're more expensive. I mean, the fact that we had so much snow in Minnesota in February or in Minneapolis in February means that what we budgeted for our snow removal and snow operations is going to be doubled and tripled. And so even just thinking about how climate change impacts local budgets is, um, is something that we have to take into account as well. Right. Good point. So I, another question that I often ask people is, how do you stay motivated for this work? Generally speaking, I'm because I'm so connected with com communities because of what I talked about earlier with um, municipalities being so close to the people that they're governing. I see the impacts of these changes probably before a lot of the policymakers on the higher levels see them. And so it each of these items equates to a person, and that is very motivating factor to me. I mean, it's almost like, you know, as a nurse, your patient is that person that you're seeing the difference in, and your care of that person is the difference between, you know, can be the difference between a quick recovery and a long recovery or no recovery at all. And I kind of see that in my profession um, where, you know, I don't have patients, but the, the residents that I work on behalf of, I can see how their lives are affected. And that is a motivating factor for me. I can also see how much of a difference local level policies make to spur movements that might be on the higher levels of government policy. And so it kind of goes both ways. It goes down to touching the individual and making an impact on the individual's life, but also how we can be leaders in policy and spur that kind of psychological change that I was talking about earlier um, on, a broader, on a broader level. So there's things that we've done in Minneapolis and there's things that cities all over the nation have done that move our country in a different direction. And so being, being a part of that and being able to see how policies spread like that and can move an entire nation is also a motivating factor for me. That's terrific. 
Well, I, as a citizen, I thank you for the work you're doing. It's, it sounds fantastic, and it, I think uh, Minneapolis is a leading city. Um, and as a nurse, also, it's wonderful to um, talk to you about your experience and how, how, how this clearly is a nursing issue. I mean, not just environment and health, but your work in the, in the city from a, from a public health perspective. So it's been really great to talk with you. Is there anything else you'd like to add today, Heidi? I think the one thing that I wanted to make sure that I talked about is um, <clears throat> we recently had a um, very large homeless encampment in our city. Um, it started small. It grew to be over 300 people. And in the past, the way, and many cities do it this way, in the past, um, many cities will just clear out the homeless encampment, but this there were a couple unique factors in this particular encampment. One was it was right around 95% native um, residents in the encampment. And two, there was a large uh, population of people that were that had substance use disorder and were suffering as a result of the opioid epidemic. And so our mayor and our policymakers thought a lot about their response to this homeless encampment um, and decided to do something pretty different. And I don't think I've seen it anywhere in the nation where we focus some efforts in terms of housing and um, treatment and things like that. But then we also set up a temporary navigation center on land that was donated by the Red Lake Indian Reservation um, they're planning on, they own the land, they're planning on building affordable housing in the spring, but they offered it to the city and said, let's do this temporary navigation center. Let's try and get these people help, get them into housing, you know, get them the treatment that they need. There was also some very significant um, medical issues to deal with. Um, and I bring it up because one of the things that we saw throughout the summer and then again as it started to get cold is that you know this significant population of people are outside and they're dealing with the elements and so we had you know issues with heat stroke um and then we had issues when it got cold of people you know of course being too cold but then also starting fires in their tents which for all sorts of health and safety reasons you can imagine is a problem um, and then also um, the, the opioid epidemic. And then even just things that are basic, like toilets and hand washing and things like that. And so our health department really was a big part of making sure that we didn't have any kind of tuberculosis or hepatitis A or, you know, those type of outbreaks. Um, and I guess I just want to bring it up because I talked a little bit earlier about how climate change can hit our most vulnerable populations disproportionately. And that is the population that I think are feeling that. I mean, whereas you might be able to spend, even in Minnesota, a good chunk of your time outdoors. Um, now, if you don't have a place to be sheltered from the elements, it's becoming you know, life-threatening. Yeah, good point, both in winter and summer. Right. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a great program and, and uh, helping solve a really complex challenge. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, right. It's ongoing. 
Well, thank you, Heidi. It's been great to talk to you today, and I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. No problem. And thank you all for listening to the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. Check us out at environ.org, where you can find many other episodes. Please leave a review for us wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you next time. <music>